Yes, if you've got monkeys on the knees, just there. And there are only three and six a box. Peter Sellers was a god in my house. I did not know the bank was being robbed because I was engaged in my sworn duty as a police officer. He really was a chameleon. He really could transform. If you are wondering, has uh, anybody uh, instructed Lolita in the facts of life? He became so famous in the 60s when the world was changing. It's like the Beatles. He's connected to that time. Hello, Dimitri. Listen, I, I can't hear too well. Do you suppose you could turn the music down just a little? He said that there is no Peter Sellers. There's the people he plays. To a great extent, I believe that was true. Peter Sellers had a brief rule over British comedy, but a vast influence. I'm David Darcy. Join me with Jeffrey Rush, Tracy Ullman, Blake Edwards, Mike Myers, and lots of other voices. Next, Independent Minds looks at Peter Sellers. Even before the Beatles transformed rock and roll, British comedy was changing what we thought was funny, thanks to Peter Sellers. Sellers reinvented comedy on the radio, in British movies, and in Hollywood. He was a virtuoso vocal mimic, and his physical comedy was his generation's answer to Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. He's the reason why films like I'm All Right, Jack Lolita, Dr. Strangelove, and Being There are classics. Yet as famous as Sellers was, much of his work is barely known. This is Independent Minds, Peter Sellers. I'm David Darcy. This year's the 40th anniversary of The Pink Panther. A whole generation has just begun to know Peter Sellers. And with the upcoming premiere of HBO films, The Life and Death of Peter Sellers, it's time for another look. The subtlety of it, the quietness of some of the characters he did, I thought, God, I want to be the female Peter Sellers. I owe so much to Peter Sellers. Doing multiple characters was something that became preferable and possible. I can't say enough how much Peter Sellers has influenced me, what I like, what I like to watch. Peter Sellers has his admirers, actors making comedy today like Mike Myers and Tracy Ullman, and those who worked with him, directors Paul Mazursky and Joe McGrath. He could instantly capture the essence of a ridiculous situation and pin it down and do certain kinds of characters. You've seen it in the movies, and he plays it with reality. Straight, very straight, you know, even in Clouseau. Straight, he's never doing it with like, look, I'm making a joke. Very special. Even to this day, producers look at a script and say, God, if only Sellers was still alive, you know, it'd be wonderful, he could do this. It's a very strange thing. He was very much, I think he was unique. One day on the street, someone spotted the star of the Pink Panther and Dr. Strangelove and asked, are you Peter Sellers? His response was, not today. Sellers, the brilliant mimic and comedian, would play with the notion that he was an empty shell whose identity shifted with each script. If Sellers had an identity, it was an identity born on the stage, a world of costumes, accents, and masks. He made his debut at the age of two weeks in his grandmother's vaudeville show. As a child, he traveled from stage to stage with his mother, a singer, and his father, a musician. My parents and my grandparents were all in the theater. I was apprenticed in the theater. My uh, mother had me working in a theater that belonged to my uncle. My mother used to say, never ask a 
anybody in the theater to do a job that you cannot do yourself because, you know, sometime or another you'll be called upon to do it. And I started sweeping up theaters between performances. As a half-Jewish boy in a Catholic school, Sellers played his role well and learned his lines from the catechism. That's about all the formal education he had. After serving in World War II, Sellers could have made a living as a jazz drummer, but he opted for comedy, aping the military and the upper classes as a warm-up act in a strip club. Sellers' biographer, Roger Lewis. Well, he certainly began his own career as as an impressionist, as an impersonator, as an imitator. He uh, would do take-offs of famous people and celebrities and so on. That's how he uh, made his name. That was the act that he used to do in the variety theatres. But he was much more than that. Uh, He always gave heart and soul and some strange spiritual dimension to his various caricatures. Um, I think he was a great actor rather than a great imitator. If he'd been talking to you, he within two minutes he would be speaking back to you in your voice. He couldn't help it. Joe McGrath met Sellers at BBC Radio and directed him on the later films Casino Royale and The Magic Christian. When he and I met and would talk in on movies, he'd speak to me in a Scots accent and then he'd turn to Ringo in Magic Christian and speak to Ringo in a Liverpudlian accent. And, of course, Ringo and I thought, he's putting us on. But he wasn't. He just couldn't help it. You'd sometimes... I'd listen to Peter Sellers doing interviews and he'd turn into the interviewer... um, he, he'd become Yorkshire, or he'd become posh, or he'd become East End of London, or, of course, he'd become American. So he was this chameleon. His gift for mimicry made him a natural for radio. In 1951, Sellers created The Goon Show for the BBC with Spike Milligan, Harry Seacombe, and Michael Benteen. Sellers' voice is the last one you'll hear. This is the BBC. After the news, there'll be a talk on early Christian plastic knees and the first broadcast of a piece of knotted string. If you would like a piece of knotted string, send three rust-proof shillings to Honest Walgreen State of Weybridge. Ta. Hello, folks of world! Hello, folks of world! And in that order! Ta. That voice comes from inside a short, fat, round blob, namely Neddy of Wales. Thank you, Jim Crint. My first impression will be of Peter Sellers. How ha! My next impression will be of Spiky Milligan saying thin. Thin! 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 That's thin enough. Oh, right. Thank you, thank you. Remember, folks, saying thin cures you of monkeys on the knee. Yes, if you've got monkeys on the knees, just there. Thin! And they're only three and six a box. I think that kids, and I was one of them, loved The Goon Show because it was this great disruptive gang of grown-ups behaving like children pulling society apart. Film critic David Thompson grew up listening to the goons. There were very set conventions of radio humor, and the goon show exploded them all. It was surreal. It was anarchic. It was as if it was made up on the spur of the moment. It was extremely creative, but, but again, often absurdist way. It mocked everything that had gone on radio before. It also mocked every social convention in Britain and every convention of storytelling. 
The goons' favorite targets were the military and the upper classes who returned to their places of privilege after the war that brought Britain to its knees. The show was live and incendiary. 1938, but from the continent came ominous rumblings. Oh, oh, this Spanish food. Oh, waiter, one brandy and pronto. One brandy and pronto coming up. Those were the last words said at peace. At that moment, Germany declared war in all directions. Bang! Bang? War! I must write my memoirs. <laughs> the day war broke, I said to Alan Brooke, you fool, don't you realise that... England was mobilised! Recruits were rushing to the recruiting depots at the rate of one a year. We joined the story, we joined the story in 1942, a critical year for Britain, with British generals slaving away at their autobiographies. While across the channel, the German high command were welding a master plan. Kids in the playground would imitate all the voices. I mean, I knew kids who talked in goon show voices all the time. Even Prince Charles was a fan. Other fans were the Beyond the Fringe comics Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, and just about every kid who would eventually go to a British university. Twenty years later, some of those kids would take the lessons they learned from Peter Sellers into Monty Python's Flying Circus. Jeffrey Rush listened to The Goon Show when he was a young actor in Australia. He plays Sellers in the forthcoming HBO film The Life and Death of Peter Sellers. Every Saturday at noon, they would be on, and I would by chance be walking in to do a matinee performance in whatever city I was working in at the time for a two o'clock show, and I would always listen to the show on my newly invented Walkman. And even then, 25 years later, there was not one hint of it being of its own time or in any way slightly dated. The goons went on to make movies. Peter Sellers, always the standout, started to show up in other small British films. At first, Sellers on screen was a voice, or a few of them, then a character actor, like Alec Guinness's portly thug of a sidekick in the 1955 classic, The Lady Killers. You leave it to me, Ma. I'm very good with birds. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, no, I do right, apologize. No, no, no. Oh, no. I assure you, he's never bitten anyone before. Hasn't he? I wonder how we're to get him down. Oh, I am so sorry, Mr. Robinson. Mm. I'll get a band. No, don't, don't bother, Mrs. Wilberforce. It's all right. Swap the deck yourself, you filthy-looking... Sellers was becoming a physical oh, comic. Dear. Like the voices, the physical types were often a surprise. In the 1959 Bolting Brothers spoof, I'm All Right, Jack, Peter Sellers played the pompous Fred Kite, a communist factory shop steward. Writer and TV producer Alan McEwen. The portrayal of the shop steward in I'm All Right, Jack is just absolutely classic. I don't think that the union movement ever got over that incredible performance of his. I mean, it was just brilliant. Right, brothers, have we all gathered? My purpose in convening you is to lay before you certain facts. A few minutes ago, I was handed this paper by a representative of the management. Everything about it constitutes quite definitely, quite definitely, a definite breach of the existing agreements that exist between management and unions. A diabolical liberty. Seller's biographer, Ed Sykoff. This is a very interesting character that he plays. He's a union shop steward, a real martinet, a, a communist of the old order. But he's got sort of affectations towards grandeur. 
And yet the guy could be a, a complete joke, and he is kind of a joke, but he's also a, a, a real human being, someone that you feel for and understand and, and care about. He's not someone to ridicule. Yes, here's another good one to start on. Collective childhood and factory manhood. Oh, sounds fun. Yeah, very descriptive. It's all about how they run factories in a worker's state. However, I won't spoil it for you. Have you ever been to Russia, Mr. Kite? Uh, no, not yet. The one place I'd like to go to, though. All them cornfields and bally in the evening. Is he still on about Russia? I'll tell you straight. That's all we ever get to hear in this house. You know, my mother worked, uh, and my father, worked in factories in England. Actor, comedian, Mike Myers. Their joy of Fred Kite, the shop steward in I'm Alright Jack, it was a laughter of recognition of how precise and absolutely accurate the relentlessly self-improving shop steward who uses huge words based on his own insecurity of a lack of education and the class anger that somebody like that has. Actor-comedian Tracy Ullman. And I just remember him trying to be an intellectual in it. Um, oh, it's wonderful in Russia, I'll tell you. You know, you've got uh, cornfields in the day, ballet in the evenings. <laughs> you know, you're talking about communist Russia. Sellers won a British Academy Award for that role. In each film, his characters seemed to get quirkier, he played three roles in The Mouse That Roared. The Mouse That Roared, the film that united the nations in roars of laughter. Starring an hilarious new personality, Peter Sellers, in three gloriously funny roles. Peter Sellers as the noble statesman. There isn't a more profitable undertaking for any country than to declare war on the United States and to be defeated. Peter Sellers as the fearless leader. Men of Fenwick, when you hear the name of Grand Fenwick, do your hearts swell with pride? Yes! And if your country calls, will you rush to enlist? No! Oh. Peter Sellers as the Grand Duchess. Do give my love to your president, will you? And Mrs. Coolidge, too. I guess he was one of those actors who just broadened the horizon. He just brought such theatrics to movies. He brought the extravagance of stage performance or music hall performance to a form that's, that until then was much more contained. John Lithgow, who plays the director Blake Edwards in The Life and Death of Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers, the character actor, was now being cast as a leading man, the odd leading man that only Sellers could be. Sellers was now a movie star. He'd slimmed down as his income grew. The tabloids covered Sellers' appetite for gadgets, cars, and starlets, and the first of his four marriages collapsed. He was getting great roles, and by the early 60s, Sellers was looking beyond comedy. So was director Stanley Kubrick, who cast him in Lolita as the ruthless screenwriter Claire Quilty, the nemesis to James Mason's Humbert Humbert. Sellers played two roles, Quilty and a Freudian guidance counselor. Kubrick set up three cameras so he wouldn't miss any of Sellers' improvised nuances, which almost always came on the first take. Kubrick gave Sellers the freedom to create his roles in Lolita. It was a way to get beyond simply adapting Vladimir Nabokov's novel. Biographer Ed Sykoff. James Mason, for example, in Lolita, wrote in his autobiography that you know no one was allowed to do any deviation from the script except for Peter Sellers, who was given absolutely free reign to do whatever he wanted. And I think that that comes out in the film with Claire Quilty's complete, um, unpredictable, manic kind of 
creepy and, and very funny quality in, in comparison to Humbert's staid confusion. Tell me something, um, I couldn't help uh, noticing when you checked in tonight, it's uh, part of my job, I notice uh, human individuals and I notice your face. I said to myself when I saw you, I said, that's a guy with the most normal looking face I ever saw in my life. That's very nice of you to say that. Not a bit, not a bit, it's great to see a normal face because I'm a normal guy. It'd be great for two normal guys like us to get together and talk about world events, you know, in a normal sort of way. Well, there's nothing I would like better than that, but I, I don't have much time. Oh, it's a pity, because uh, may I say one other thing to you? It's really on my mind. I've been thinking about it quite a lot. I noticed when you was checking in, you had a lovely, pretty little girl with you. She was really lovely. I, as a matter of fact, she wasn't so little, come to think of it. She was a fairly tall little, well, I mean, taller than little, you know what I mean? But uh, she was really lovely. I wish I had a lovely, pretty tall, lovely little girl like that. I mean, it's well, that was, that's just my daughter. I really remember Sellers growing up as this phenomenally funny, sort of dark and dangerous and interesting guy. Stephen Hopkins is the director of the film The Life and Death of Peter Sellers. I saw what a phenomenal actor he was and how he could do something that a lot of actors can't do, which is bring impossible, eccentric, uh, what would normally be considered cartoonish characters down to earth and be completely believable. Like when I watched Dr. Strangelove again... Um, those characters should never have been allowed to to exist, you know. But he managed to, uh, I guess, inhabit or allow them to inhabit him so completely that you never, for a second, don't believe him. I mean, it's a rare acting talent that he has. Doctor Strange Love, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, a moving <laughs> picture. In Doctor Strange Love, Stanley Kubrick took on the unimaginable an accidental thermonuclear war. Sellers played three characters trapped as the world faces annihilation. There was Royal Air Force Captain Lionel Mandrake. Mandrake, come here. You calling me, Jack? Come over here and help me with this belt. I, uh, I haven't had very much experience, you know, with those sort of machines. Jack, I... Only ever pressed a button in my old spitfire. Hendrick, in the name of Her Majesty and the Continental Congress, come here and feed me this belt, boy. Jack, I'd love to come. But um, what's happened? You see, the string in my leg's gone. And Merkin Muffley, the President of the United States. <laughs> now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Uh, well, let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? And the wheelchair-bound nuclear strategist, Dr. Strangelove, who described life underground after nuclear war. You mean people could actually stay down there for a 100 years? It would not be difficult, my Fuhrer. Nuclear reactors could... <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. President. Nuclear reactors could provide power almost indefinitely. Greenhouses could maintain plant life. 
animals could be bred and slaughtered. Quick survey would have to be made of all the available mine sites in the country. But I would guess that a dwelling space for several hundred thousand of our people could easily be provided. Sellers was the great improviser. Biographer Ed Sykoff. For example, they would be doing something and Sellers would be so funny and so brilliant that it was difficult for the crew to keep a straight face. You can see, in fact, in Dr. Strangelove, in one of the war room moments, you can see in the background some of the actors are cracking up because Sellers is too funny. And Kubrick went with those takes despite the fact that his characters are breaking character and laughing at a performer because Sellers was magnificent and Kubrick appreciated that. That was what made his movie for him. And when I saw Dr. Strangelove, I just... It was just the greatest, the subtlety of it, the quietness of some of the characters he did. I thought, God, I want to be the female Peter Sellers. Tracy Ullman. Sellers' tour de force performances made Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove a classic. It was another film and another character that became his meal ticket. In 1963, the same year Dr. Strangelove was made, the American director Blake Edwards cast Sellers in a role that Peter Ustinov turned down as a bumbling detective in The Pink Panther, a comedy starring David Niven. On the set, Sellers stole the show, and Inspector Clouseau was born. Clouseau is a self-important fool. He's outlived Peter Sellers, and he's immortalized him. My study variants. Yes, the uh, porter just brought it in. Oh, I sent it to the village to be repaired. I just hope they know how to fix plastic. I hope so, too. The fast are good. We shall see. Better than ever. Yeah, I doubt if we shall need it tonight, my love. Just how or why Sellers created Clouseau isn't clear. Some say he's Sellers' homage to the French comic Jacques Tati, or just his homage to the worst English stereotypes of the French. By their second film together, A Shot in the Dark, Inspector Clouseau, with his mustache, his trench coat, and his accent, became even harder to understand. Director Blake Edwards. He came back from Paris on a weekend and told me that he had run into a, a concierge in a Paris hotel that spoke like this, and he demonstrated, and I thought it was great. And I said, well, let's do it from here on. And he said, well, we can't. We've shot half a film. How can we do that? And I said, let's just take a chance that nobody will pay any attention until after the fact, and nobody did. Jeffrey Rush, as Peter Sellers, tries out his idea for Clouseau in the forthcoming HBO film, The Life and Death of Peter Sellers. HBO Films is an underwriter for this program. Ladies and gentlemen, we are about to make our final approach into Rome International. Uh, Excusez-moi. Please take your seat, sir. Please ensure your seat belts are fastened and your seats are in the upright position. Sir. Yes, I'm looking uh, for my trunk. Your trunk? What? Y you said trunk? I know perfectly well what I said. Right. I don't understand. Are you not familiar with Her Majesty's tongue? Yes, I am. And I can assure you the word trunk 
does not exist in our language. Then I demand to speak to the person in charge. I am the person in charge, sir. Ah, then I demand to speak with you. You are speaking to me. Of course I'm speaking with you. What kind of a crazy stewardess thinks a passenger stands speaking with himself? What kind of a passenger puts everyone's lives at risk just before a landing? Hmm? Our lives are at risk! Oh, Our lives are not at risk! The Pink Panther movies were hits, and Blake Edwards and Sellers went on to make six more sequels over the next 15 years. Their collaboration was successful, but stormy, director Blake Edwards. He called me at midnight and said, don't worry about tomorrow. I know how to do it. I just talked to God. And uh, morning he came on and he was bright and cheerful. And he performed what he said God had uh, indicated he should do. And it was pathetic. It was really sad. It made no sense at all. And he, after it was done... Why, uh, he came over with a big smile on his face and said, well, what did you think? And I said, look, do me a favor, Peter. The next time you talk to God, tell him to stay the Scottish out of show business. He got very petulant and went in his room and then disappeared, drove off the lot, and we didn't get him back that day. Well, he grew to hate it, but uh, but that's Peter. I mean, he... he you know, he, he said to me, I never want to do another Cluzo, but I have to, he said, because, uh, you know, I have to make a living. Sellers made film after film, but from the late 50s on, he also made recordings of comedy skits and novelty songs. Think of them as an extension of the goon show's anarchy. The recordings hit the British pop charts and reached Americans like the actor John Lithgow. There was an amazing long-playing record called The Best of Sellers that I listened to many, many times, which had unbelievable sort of solo comedy routines on it, highly produced. All right, boys, one, two, seven, nine. Now there's a town where the folks are dumb, but they're always happy and never glum. They just drink rum till they feel quite numb and do the dipso, calypso, the dipso. In the recording studio, Sellers cast his co-stars like Sophia Loren and Bangers and Mash, a musical food fight between an English World War II veteran and his Italian war bride. Eat your minestrone, Joe. That's all you ever sang. Eat your macaroni, Joe. Every blinking time. No wonder you're so bony, Joe, and skinny as a rake. Well, then give us a bash at the bangers and mash me mother used to make. Bangers and mash. One of Sellers' early recording collaborators was George Martin. Martin would go on to produce the Beatles, who themselves were huge Goon Show fans. Sellers became a Beatle fan and created a fan's ultimate tribute to the group. It has been a hard day's night, and I have been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night. I should be sleeping like a log. But when I get home to you, I find the things that you do will make me feel all right. Sellers' recordings were a lot like his movies, only more idiosyncratic because he was directing himself. Hello, children. Time for our good deed. Saving Grandpa the bother of chopping the firewood. Have you got your little hatchets ready? Good. 
And here is Uncle Rotter to sing for you. Sharpen the hatchet and run up the stairs, hide beneath the bed now. One, two, diddly do, and off with Grandpa's head now. Rotter? Yes. There. Now, never mind the mess. Seller's instinct was to go for satire. But sometimes he was just celebrating the music hall where he made his stage debut at the age of two months. I've got a clock that wakes me every morning for my train. I've got a corn that gives me warning when it's going to rain. I've had a dream that's coming true. I've got a sweetie in view. I've got an idea, soon there'll be One little, two little, possibly three I haven't told her, she hasn't told me But we know it just the same In a moment, Peter Sellers takes on Hollywood, James Bond, the 60s, and Blake Edwards again. You're listening to Independent Minds, Peter Sellers. I'm David Darcy. Sellers continued making films, churning out three or four a year, and though he and Blake Edwards often swore they'd never work together again, their collaborations created a funnier and funnier Peter Sellers. In 1968, Edwards directed Sellers in The Party. Sellers played an Indian actor who's invited mistakenly to a studio mogul's home. Mike Myers. The Party is pure silliness. It's, it's all slapstick, it's all sight gags, it's all comedy staging set pieces. You never for a second don't believe his character. You just believe he's this guy from India. I missed the middle part, but I can tell from the way that you are enjoying yourselves. It must have been a very humorous anecdote <laughs> because the way you are laughing just shows how it enjoyed it. <laughs> I love a good laugh, don't you? <laughs> Makes the world go round. It's good to have a laugh. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> Director Paul Mazursky met Sellers around this time. He saw how difficult working with him could be. I realized after being on the set of the party a couple of times that Blake and Peter didn't talk to each other. They communicated through the assistant director. Blake would say, ask Mr. Sellers if he would cross on that line and sit on this line and do this and that, and Peter would do it and say, tell Mr. Edwards it's perfectly comfortable. And so I, I realized, well, you know, there's something tough here. Sellers and Blake Edwards lived a painful parody of a Hollywood professional marriage, only longer. I'm not supposed to tell you, but United Artists already wants a Clouseau sequel. Who's directing? Oh, probably some hack. 
I'm dead serious. Peter, relax. You're not suggesting you would. What are you talking about? I was bloody awful up there. That's what you're going to get out of me. I don't think I want to repeat the experience. You're blaming me for your performance? So you agree I was awful? I thought you were brilliant! What do you know? From The Life and Death of Peter Sellers, Jeffrey Rush and John Lithgow as Sellers and director Blake Edwards. Sellers was better with on-screen characters than with his off-screen relationships, whether it was his four marriages or the three children who had to endure the extremes of the real Peter Sellers. Director Stephen Hopkins. I don't think giving any human being huge amounts of money and adoration and fame ever makes someone a better person. You know, It allowed him not to have to deal with people not to have to confront people. He could do something and walk away and not have to pay the debt. But I think he had great depressions, bleak, dark periods, which I think was his unconscious saying to him, you have a problem and you're actually genuinely ashamed. But he still couldn't see that, so he would just go into very dark places, I think. For director Blake Edwards, the star of his crazy comedies was just that, insane. He said that there is no Peter Sellers, this, the people he plays. And uh, to a great extent, I believe that was true. To a greater extent, I think that he was a borderline psychotic and uh, was able to just stay away from uh, somebody lassoing him and putting him in a cage. But madness in front of the camera could be great comedy. In What's New Pussycat?, Peter Sellers is a suicidal psychiatrist treating a very young Woody Allen. What's going on here? Why don't you shut up, you cretin? I'm trying to commit suicide. Set fire to my beautiful psychoanalyst body and sail out to sea ablaze like a Viking. You're a doctor? I'm a doctor of the mind. Really? Yes. I have terrible emotional problems. Could you help me? You certainly picked a very odd time to ask me, just in the middle of a suicide. All right, but you'll have to lay down, because I can't do it standing up. What do you mean, lay down? This is a rented tuxedo. I don't care what it is. Lay down. I can't do it standing up. I think he's one of those pop art characters who appeared at such a turning point in time. He became so famous in the 60s when the world was changing. He's almost like the Beatles. He's connected to that time, connected to something about the world changing. Director Stephen Hopkins. And then there's a great photo by David Bailey of him. He actually looks kind of angry, and it's the glasses, and it's the haircut, and then it's the the snappy suit that invented a whole style, really, at the time. He was always way ahead of his time in terms of gimmicks and clothes, and he, he just loved to be modern. Men before that in Britain weren't supposed to be like that. They were supposed to be traditional, and he was the most untraditional person that you could be. Peter Sellers was living the lavish life of an international movie star. He jetted around with director Roman Polanski, The Beatles, and Princess Margaret, In 1964, on a weekend off from the comedy Kiss Me Stupid, which Billy Wilder was directing, Sellers and his wife, the Swedish starlet Britt Eklund, went on a drug binge that ended when Sellers suffered a series of heart attacks. He was 38 years old. From the life and death of Peter Sellers. Okay, we got him back. Let's get an IV in. 
Hello, children. The spirits have spoken. Daddy's come back from the dead. And nothing can ever hurt him again. Peter Sellers was lucky to be alive, but he never regained his health. Sellers' heart was so damaged that insuring him for the time it took to shoot a movie was a problem. And though he went on to make film after film, his career faltered. Joe McGrath was a friend of Sellers who worked on The Goon Show and directed him in the film Casino Royale. I said, why do you work so much? Why do you want to keep working? He said, well, I like when I'm making a movie. He said, you forget you're alive. He said, you actually forget during those 10, 14 or whatever the weeks are, you actually forget existence. He said, and at the end of it, you're being sued for non-payment of income tax. You haven't paid the gas bill. You haven't paid your motor license. And he said, it is wonderful because you forget absolute mortality. Mr. Bond? Miss Mr. Bond? Yes. I'm Miss Good Thighs. I can see that. You've got your cork still in your bottle. So I have. What are you going to do about it? Stick your arm out. Casino Royale was a spoof of the James Bond spy movies and the libido of the swinging 60s. It had seductive music, sexy dialogue, and a star-studded cast with David Niven, Woody Allen, Ursula Andress, and Orson Welles. The final product left the critics cold, but it's had an influence. Oh, behave! <laughs> yeah! Yeah, baby, yeah! I think you can't look at Austin Powers without seeing what Casino Royale should have been but wasn't. Biographer Ed Sykoff. I think Mike Myers understood that a James Bond-like spoof was not only possible but really something critical and crucial for comedy's sake. Sellers tried to make a Bond-type spoof in 1965, and it was one of the worst experiences of everyone's Life. The film had five directors, countless writers. Sellers was at his worst in terms of behavior. Sellers was behaving badly, disappearing from the set and costing the studio huge overruns from delayed production. He developed a phobia about being on the same set with Orson Welles. Joe McGrath was directing. I think it was fear. said, I don't want to appear in the same setup. And I said, well, you have to appear in the same setup. This is ridiculous. I said, your idea and you and Orson Welles in this movie. And the first scene that we were doing with Orson was the gambling scene in the casino with Ursula. And uh, Peter ran off the set, and we couldn't find him. And uh, Orson, of course, immediately turned to me and said, where's our thin friend? Ultimately, the two actors were filmed separately. Aren't you a little out of your depth, Mr. Bond? In the last 20 minutes, I have ruined two Greeks and a Maharaja. The night is young, and the rose garden is already littered with my victims. Yes, but the beggar who set in marketplace are deaf to song of Nightingale. You amuse me, Mr. Bond. I'm glad you're enjoying me. Casino Royale was a pastiche of fragments. Mike Myers says he pasted some of them right into Goldmember, the latest Austin Powers film, round bed for the seduction scene, and a villain named Fat Bastard in honor of Orson Welles as well as the silliness that runs through all the Sellers films of the 60s. 
Peter Sellers moved to other films that celebrated the sex and anarchy of the time. He loved the novel The Magic Christian by Terry Southern, a screenwriter of Dr. Strangelove. Sellers helped get the film made with Joel McGrath directing and Ringo Starr as his co-star. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what is commonly known as money. It comes in all sizes, colors, and denominations, like people. We'll be using quite a bit of it in the next two hours. Luckily, I have enough for all of us. If you want it, here it is. Come and get it. Make your mind up fast. That's a tremendously misanthropic project. Biographer Roger Lewis. The character of Sir Guy Grand in The Magic Christian, who goes around just seeing how much money people need in order to humiliate themselves. And a very cruel, very misanthropic vision of humanity. And Sellers loved that, that bitterness. He really felt that's what people were like, that you could buy them off. Very uncharitable view of the world. Yes, now listen, here. Are you, are you telling me that you, you're willing to give me 500 quid? Yes, to eat that ticket. that ticket. It's what you might call a limited it's offer. A limited offer. Expiring in, shall we say, I don't know, 10 seconds? Uh, you need need the plastic. I just wanted to see if you had your price. Most of us do. Good luck, sir. I'm here every Thursday. The low-budget magic Christian looked like, and was, a movie improvised by a group of friends, like Sellers' old pal from The Goon Show, Spike Milligan. The magic Christian caught on with younger satirists who worked on the film, like John Cleese, who brought its loose satire to their own work on Monty Python's Flying Circus. Director Joe McGrath. Well, now, Peter was always very annoyed. He said, was that accidental or had they, you know, were they influenced? And in Magic Christian, where he, he goes shooting uh, grouse, Peter, and he uses a machine gun. Uh, Monty Python used that as well, yeah. So uh, there, there are those moments, but then everybody is influenced, you know, by people. Peter Sellers' health was failing. The studios were wary of him, and he needed money. He took roles in now-forgotten comedies like Where Does It Hurt, in which he plays a sadistic hospital administrator, but in other obscure films, he gave characters a depth that even his admirers hadn't seen before. One is The Blockhouse, about men trapped underground in wartime France. It showed another side of the comic who'd made a career ridiculing the military, Roger Lewis. The Blockhouse, this film he made on Guernsey about these villagers who were trapped underground during a German raid in World War II and they can't get out and they're in there for years until they till they die off. I mean, that's a very melancholy, tragic film, but he gives a great performance. He's understated. I've got here an English game. Would anyone like to play? Hmm? How about you, Kozak? Would you like to play this game with me? What is it? It is called Dominos. Sounds Greek to me. Yes, it does sound Greek, but nevertheless, it is English. Possibly, I, I don't know the name of the inventor, possibly it was Greek living in England. On the other hand, of course, he could have been English and went to Greece and brought it back with him. Will you explain to us how to play this game? I can tell you one thing, it's much too simple for you, Rabinsky. But I will explain. Uh, he could be very expressive. 
without doing much. You can always tell a great actor because when they come on, you're watching them. If Peter Sellers was playing a, oh, a, a butler, the scene is suddenly about that butler. And Laurence Olivier had that ability, that they just dominate because they've got this charisma. Actor Jeffrey Rush. It's a wayward genius because um, it's a very haphazard career. I mean, he swung through some extraordinary phases where the work, just film after film after film, was dazzling and original and inspired. And then he would do eight films in a row that you, you don't revere as much or you think, oh, that's a bit trashy or that's dated. But there are always those little gems. I mean, before the return of The Pink Panther, when he got onto the, the franchise of sequels, he made a beautiful film called The Optimists. Thank you very much, Lou. Sometimes it wasn't half as bad as all that sometimes. The Optimists of Nine Elms, made in the 70s, is an overlooked gem. Sellers is a street musician who sleeps in a shack on the south bank of London and takes two children under his wing. Don't annoy the dog, Sonny. She'll pee all over you. Sometimes it wasn't half as bad as all that sometimes. Sellers, who's not even 50 here, looks haggard and ancient. In some of the scenes shot on the London streets, the public didn't even recognize him, a tribute to Sellers' acting. This Chaplin-esque tearjerker is thought to be a tribute to his musician father. Few people outside of England ever saw it. What are you staring at? In 1974, Sellers bit the bullet and rejoined Blake Edwards to resurrect Inspector Clouseau in The Return of the Pink Panther. I did not know the bank was being robbed because I was engaged in my sworn duty as a police officer. You didn't even arrest the old beggar. There was some question as to whether the beggar or his minky was breaking the law. Minky? What? You said minky. That is correct, yes. Chimpanzee minky. So I left them both off with a warning. The beggar was the lookout man for the gang. That is impossible. Why? He was blind. How can a blind man be a lookout? How can an idiot be a policeman? Answer me that! It's very simple. All he has to do is enlist. Shut up! Peter Sellers still had another ambitious role left in him. For years, he'd been carrying around a novel that he thought would be perfect for the screen and, of course, for himself. Being There by Jerzy Kaczynski was about a gardener who's thrown out on the street with no money, no education, and no knowledge of the outside world when the estate where he's been employed all his life closes. But whenever Chauncey Gardner speaks, he's treated like a prophet. Being There was directed by Hal Ashby and co-starred Shirley MacLaine. As ever, all eyes were on Sellers as the gardener whose empty pronouncements are hailed as visionary. It was 1980, the year actor Ronald Reagan would be elected president. Like Dr. Strangelove, being there was a film made for its moment in history. In a garden, growth has its season. First comes spring and summer, but then we have fall and winter. And then we get spring and summer again. Spring and summer? Yes. <clears throat> then fall and winter? Yes. Uh, 
I think what our insightful young friend is saying is that we welcome the inevitable seasons of nature, but we're upset by the seasons of our economy. Yes, there will be growth in the spring. Hmm. Film critic David Thompson. Being there is about a shell, an empty vessel, yet there is something so mysterious about this empty vessel that everybody interprets what he says as if they were the words of a great prophet and a visionary and a seer. And in a funny way, I think this could have meant something to Sellers, the empty man always pretending. And now at the, at the very end, all he pretends to be is empty. And everyone says, ah, oh, yes, a wise man at last. We found a wise man. I think it was a very intriguing role for him personally. Tracy Allman. I loved being there. I loved, uh, it's just, he was like a retarded, autistic feel and just a, that confusion of what is he? Is he brilliant? Is he not brilliant? Look how he's fooling people. Roger Lewis. It was one of the great performances of his career because, in fact, playing this quiet, calm, nothing-type person, he was, in fact, basing it, I think, on his memories of his father, who was this quiet, calm, unassuming man who uh, played the ukulele in Music Hall in vaudeville, um, who had an act that was a little bit like Stan Laurel, that mournful comedy of, of Stan Laurel. Chance is this lonely person. And I think the great thing about Sellers the artist is that he can speak to that sense of loneliness that's inside a lot of people. Sellers had just married an actress in her 20s and his health was so precarious that while being there was shot, two doctors were on the set, one to watch Sellers' elderly co-star Melvin Douglas, the other to monitor Sellers himself. Being there earned Sellers an Academy Award nomination. His name lit up the marquee once again. He was hoping to film a new comedy scripted by his friend Terry Southern about a global arms dealer. Sellers was topical to the end but his heart was barely beating. I know I should just go on being an actor, doing my best in films, doing my best in the theatre, and, uh, and really, I suppose, the ultimate is to remain, and the most difficult thing, is to remain uh, being continually successful. It was a sad irony. When he was starting out, the plump, boyish Sellers would often dye his hair white and walk with a limp to play characters much older than he was. In the last years of his life, he was gaunt and gray. Friends said he looked like he was a hundred. Sellers had a terrible, terrible fear of doing anything about his heart condition. Um, he was, however, finally convinced to do something about it, and he was on his way to Los Angeles to have some pre-surgery uh, testing done, and he stopped over in London and had a massive heart attack and never made it. Peter Sellers was just 54 when he died. Mike Myers. I'm always a little suspicious of the the take on sure he's a genius, but how flawed he was. How about sure he's a genius and just walk away? I always felt with Peter that he really left you wanting a little bit more, and I think that's that's the quality of a great comedian where you think, well, I wish he'd just 
gone further or, or a little bit more. I can't go home, the old man said. There's a rat inside me house. The little girl laughed, said, don't be daft. It's only a pink sugar mouse. That's how it was. Sometimes it wasn't half as bad as all that. There's a lot more of Peter Sellers out there to be rediscovered. His British films, his comedy albums, his home movies, and the overlooked films of the 1970s that he made for next to nothing when they were all that investors would fund. It's a tribute to Sellers that comedians are his biggest fans. It's a tribute to his acting that we're still trying to determine who he really was. This is Independent Minds, Peter Sellers. I'm David Darcy. Independent Minds, Peter Sellers is a Murray Street production. Written by David Darcy, produced by Lauren Krenzel with Matthew Glass, Matthew D. Payne, and Steve Rath. Technical production by David Gorin. Technical assistance from the BBC, National Public Radio, Tim Forrest, the Radio Foundation, and NPR West. Roger Lewis is the author of the biography The Life and Death of Peter Sellers. Ed Sykoff is the author of Mr. Strangelove. Our thanks to Andrew Rosenblum, Simone Steverson, Nessa Taylor, Bob Ald, and Hyperact Design. Find out more about Independent Minds and Peter Sellers at www.murraystreet.com. Funds for Independent Minds come from HBO Films. Our program contained copyrighted material from the BBC, The Goon Show and the Unknown Peter Sellers, from Charter Film Productions Limited, I'm All Right Jack, from Turner Entertainment Company and AOL Time Warner Company, Lolita, from Columbia Pictures Industries Incorporated, Dr. Strangelove, from Warner Brothers, Being There, from Canal Plus and Image UK Limited, The Lady Killers, from United Artists, What's New Pussycat, and The Return of the Pink Panther, from Columbia TriStar Studios, The Mouse That Roared, from Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios and Jeffrey Productions Incorporated, The Pink Panther and The Party, from Famous Artists Productions Limited, Casino Royale, from New Line Home Entertainment Company, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, from Republic Entertainment Company, a Paramount Viacom Company, The Magic Christian, from Audley, Filma, Galacticus, and Hemdale Film Corporation, The Blockhouse, from Paramount Pictures, The Optimists of Nine Elms and Monty Python's Flying Circus, and from HBO Films, The Life and Death of Peter Sellers. <laughs>